0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. In today's episode, we meet a strong broker of many years' experience, and with subject expertise and contacts that many would take multiple careers to accumulate. She's had a senior career at many of the top independent brokers. Over recent times, I've come to know and respect her as one of those people that always speaks their mind – and comes as a breath of fresh air with their own perspective on what is happening in the marketplace. Vanessa mcdonald smith is a former CEO of JLT FAC, and is now in a new role as Executive Director and Head of DNF at One Global Broking. She has a broad and senior view of the market, but has her feet close enough to the ground to be fully in touch. In this podcast, we look at today's hard market and One Global's plans to grow into it the opportunity for independence as the big brokers consolidate, and what it's like to be a senior woman, working in a time of cultural turmoil and great change. I always enjoy time spent with Vanessa, and I think you will too. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance companies' own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyds partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyds fall in behind us, or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claims service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value You can be a good underwriter and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims.
0: Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support. And we'll get on with the podcast. Well, Vanessa, thanks so much for giving us some of your time ahead of this very busy renewal season I expect it's going to be. You're at One Global reunited with Mike Reynolds. What are your strategic plans
2: Hi Mark, lovely to see you. Difficult times that we're all in, and really exciting to be at One Global. Really exciting to be back with Mike Reynolds. Lots of challenges for us going forward, and lots of ambition, which is great. We've got a five-year plan. We're intending to put offices in other places around the globe. We've opened up one in Hong Kong, which I think you saw recently. We're about to announce another one in Asia any minute now, and we're intending to be, I think, about five to six hundred people in five years' time. So I've been brought in to do some strategy for the group together with Mike and also to build a DNF practice, DNF being obviously direct in fact. We've used the initials. I'm not sure that everybody knows what they are, but most people should. And that's going to be both in London to build a team in London, but also to have people on the ground around the regions. We do feel it's very important, particularly on the direct side, that you know, you have people that understand the markets locally, speak the language, know the cultures. We've got obviously our office in Greece. That's manned by Manos and, and George and the team there. And they're Greek and they know the lay of the land and they know their clients well. And that's a philosophy that I'm very passionate about. We did it in places that I've worked for previously. We were dealing in Turkey. We had Turkish people. We were dealing in Italy. We had Italians. And I think it's a system that is very effective. And we're all about our clients. So we're trying to, I mean, everybody says it. There's a lot of rhetoric in talking about. We're all about clients. But we really do want to make sure that there's a lot of personal touch. We're in a very tough market environment. And um, we need to be putting our clients first.
0: Just to put that in context, that four or 500 people. In five years' time, what base are you starting from right now?
2: Well, when I joined on the 1st of July, I think we were about 87, and we're now just over 100. So we've been on a fairly rigorous hiring campaign. Duncan Urquhart's just joined us. He's brought another guy in Jasper Neem. Harry Vickers joined us on Monday. We've got Gavin Pickering joining. We've got Max Bingley. And we're really building out our specialty lines, which is great. And we're bringing some quite a few grey hairs, I suppose. Somebody referred to uh, myself and Duncan as quite an interesting veteran team. I'm not sure I think that's very flattering. but um...
0: Experience.
2: (laughs) Experience. I like that word better. But yes, it's good. And Duncan was very instrumental in building a construction practice at Willis, amongst other things. So he'll bring that expertise. I've done the property side and terrorism and a number of other things, but predominantly been property through my career. But yeah, we bring quite a lot of experience to the Exco and hopefully we'll be attracting others who will also bring that experience.
0: So is it the strategy to be quite specialist and and make sure you've got particular niches and strong skills in particular areas or to be quite generalist?
2: I think we will be focusing mainly on specialty lines. I think that's the idea. We're also intending to build a reinsurance arm. And I think going forward that there will be plenty of opportunity with perhaps people not wanting to stay in some of the uh, acquisitions and mergers that are going on. But yes, I think mainly specialty lines. So we've started to build an aviation practice. We're building a financial lines practice, which Max is going to run. We're building energy. Obviously, Gavin Pickering is mainly offshore. So we'll be looking to add onshore power mining. I've had experience
0: in that lines. Anywhere where there's an international hub for insurance in the world, you're likely to be there.
2: Yes, I think the obvious exception at the moment will be the States. We do have some offices there uh, via Worldlink, but that's very much directed to the aviation business.
0: Vanessa, you mentioned the hard market, which is an unavoidable fact It's everywhere. What classes and territories are you seeing the best opportunities at the moment?
2: Well, I hate that question, Mark, because uh, whatever you say, somebody will go, oh, I don't agree with that. I think it's there and it's there. But I think we're at a point in time, and not only are we facing a bit of a hard market, obviously, we're in a very tricky, both economic and financial and the new normal, I guess is what you'd put it, you know, with COVID. I think that there's opportunities in a number of areas, however like we know that Canada has had a lot of withdrawals of capacity. We're seeing a lot more Canadian business coming into the market. The rates are going up significantly. But again, when I say point in time, when capacity comes back into Canada, because the rates have increased and everyone can see this opportunity, then I think you'll see that business sort of flowing back into local markets. Similarly, in Latin America, we've just done a very big renewal there. Surprisingly, easy to place, probably a bit flippant, but we didn't struggle for capacity. And a lot of the local markets put in some big lines and strong lines. So that sort of business is catering for itself locally. However, a lot of underwriters are now trying to exclude strike riots and civil commotion, following on from the Chilean riots. So there's a big opportunity to do separate placements on strike riots and civil commotion. So that's an opportunity. But I think generally, I think, again, Australian business, following the losses and the wildfires, there was the withdrawal of capacity and the rates went up. But the rates have always been very low there. So when you say the rates are going up, 20 or 30 percent of nothing isn't very much. And so there are opportunities, but I don't think I would want to pinpoint exactly which territory. I've mentioned a few, but I think there's opportunities for the London market, provided that we still can offer service the right capacity. And there are signs that we could struggle with some of that with some of the syndicates changing plans. It's an interesting landscape.
0: What about some of the lines? You mentioned that you're building a financial lines practice. Anecdotally, there's been a lot of difficulty in that market dislocation. Is that partly your motivation in wanting to build that practice?
2: I'm not sure if that, that was the motivation. I think it's a very important string of specialty capacity or lines that we should be giving to our clients. And Unfortunately, I would have to say I'm not very um, experienced in the financial lines sector, which is why we're bringing people like Max Bingley in to run it. But I think it's all part of our plan to make sure that whatever our clients need, that we're able to offer that. And financial lines was something that we didn't really have as part of our bouquet before. And it's something that we feel is extremely important.
0: I'd like to draw on your experience now and try and put this hard market today, the 2020 hard market into some kind of context. So how does it compare with other hard markets you've seen in your career?
2: Um, I think they're all different. And I think they all have very different characteristics. At the moment, we're struggling a lot more because we're doing remote working. And I know One of the things that you've perhaps flagged that you want to talk about at some point in this podcast is face-to-face negotiations, whether they're still important or not. And we've got technology and maybe I'll bundle all that together at this point in time, because I think it's very relevant to where we're at. The face-to-face negotiations are one of the real characteristics of the London market, and it's what's made us quite unique and quite special, not just for brokers and underwriters to be able to negotiate, but a client coming into London can see face-to-face and build relationships with the markets that have been supporting them for years. And that's been, I think, invaluable. It's also been a reason that people come to Lloyd's, apart from the innovation that the London market's been able to provide. And at the moment, remote working, I think we've all managed fantastically, by the way. I think it's been quite interesting how for many years we've railed against electronic trading. It can't be done. Things can't be placed unless it's face to face. And when you have to do it, you do do it. Is it ideal? No what are the difficulties with it? I think one of the key things that I've seen is that the underwriters are quite inundated because people that they've never even heard of before are just blanket marketing everything. So they're getting hundreds of submissions, whereas Probably they saw people that had relationships with, people that could be bothered to go in to see them. And because we weren't doing it as an electronic trading platform, they probably were able to manage their workflow a little better. The other thing I think is tricky is the underwriters have been shut down, really, for a lot longer than we have. Most of us have been able to get in. Some of us have been able to get into the office. And they've got an underwriter working in their house in Clapham. And their technical team in North London and someone in... Brentwood. And there's not a lot of communication between the two. So you get a line from an underwriter and you go to bind it on PPL. And suddenly it comes back with a raft of 15 subjectivities on the day of binding. And the old days, the face-to-face negotiation, you sit down, you you get a quote, you go back, you get the line down from the underwriter. He, she wants to be really difficult about putting stuff on the slip. You have a tussle, you manage to reject it or you agree it, whichever one. The stamp goes on the slip and off you go. And of course that's not happening. And on the day of binding, you've got an underwriting assistant or a technical person suddenly putting lots of stuff on slips. So you're having to try and get hold of the underwriter. So it's very disjointed at the moment. And I think it's making life for everybody. I'm not saying it's just the brokers. I think the underwriters are under a lot of pressure too. But
0: do you think it's just teething troubles? They'll work through it. They'll find ways of triaging that inbox that's got too much stuff in it. And these things will become more joined up, do you think?
2: Interesting question. We're seeing. Different underwriters approaching it very differently. We're seeing some underwriters who are sitting up till two o'clock in the morning, getting through all their work to give a good service to brokers, and other underwriters who are MIA and can't be found, don't answer emails, won't respond. So I think there's a bit of personal input that affects it. I think there's perhaps a workload. Those who've got a bigger team as an underwriting team manage it better because they can spread that workload. There's a hell of a lot of underwriting movement going on in the market at the moment, quite staggering actually. I don't know whether you've picked up on it, but I'm sure you have. Does
0: that make it difficult because you've got people on gardening leave and then you've got no one actually minding the shop?
2: Well, you've got that and you've got possible lack of continuity again. And yes, so it's a merry-go-round. And because the minute you get new capacity in the market, like uh, Convex or Fidelis have employed people on the DNF side, for every movement, there's a vacuum that needs to be filled. And that is what's happening at the moment.
0: Vanessa, do you think part of what you miss about face-to-face is that actual physical presence of that? I'm trying to picture you with five subjectivities you want to remove, and I'm an underwriter. I can imagine that you just won't leave until I've just signed them off.
2: Well, um, I'm sure we'd have a discussion about it, Mark. But, <laughs> uh, but yes, I do think. But also, you're able, to, you're able to put your point across much better in person than pinging emails backwards and forwards. And it's all about negotiation, as we know. Yes, it's much more difficult for the underwriter to say no if you're sitting there face to face, I'm sure. But it's not about that sort of pressure. I think it's just about the ability to be able to dialogue and the ability to be able to come to a a good landing at the time and not on the day of binding.
0: And explain difficult things that look difficult on paper. Correct. What about creativity? Do you think it's hard to do something genuinely new that is groundbreaking and needs explaining, a lot of explaining?
2: Look, I think we'll, we'll find ways of doing that. I think, you know, the creativity in the market hopefully isn't dead. I think that the need to find different solutions for clients is still there and we've still got to come up with those. It probably takes a little bit more effort You know, you have to do Zoom calls or team calls or you have to try and meet people, which we can't obviously at the moment. But we were having coffees with underwriters. We were meeting up in the city, even if it wasn't in Lloyd's or in their offices or ours. We'd find a mutual place to do that. I think the market will still keep that. We are being much more driven by computer says no. And we know that the analysts and the need for reporting on aggregates and and all kinds of things is hampering creativity but there is still creativity I think.
0: Back to the market is it a capacity crunch in some way or is it just there's a big increase in demand you mentioned previously that you haven't found a huge lack of capacity is it just that that capacity is waiting for the right price?
2: Well I think it depends on what class you're talking about so we have to be careful on that so construction for example after some of the major losses that were happening in 2018 2019 a number of people pulled out of riding construction and there is definitely some capacity bottlenecks uh, and some crunches and particularly for I mean if you're talking about wood frame construction in the US we know that we've got a massive problem because it's not popular particularly anything that happens to sit in the middle of a forest because they seem to catch light quite frequently at the moment so those sorts of areas definitely have capacity crisis other areas you're quite right they're waiting for the right price or they've only got a certain amount of aggregate left and they're going to wait to, to use that we are seeing that quite a few people on the underwriting side surprisingly despite the fact we've been locked down most of the year have met budget beaten budget used a lot of their income this year and they're able to sit back then with either no income left or a reasonably small amount to pick and choose what they want to write. So we are seeing some interesting dynamics on that side. But you've then got people like Convex coming into the market with good capacity. We're seeing some new MGAs popping up. So Arrows Risk Partners, K2 International, the team that was at Pioneer has gone over there. Fidelis have built up a, a team of underwriters on the DNF side, and they've also got capacity from Berkshire Hathaway. Now we know what Berkshire Hathaway are like. Hopefully this isn't litigious, but they're an opportunistic market quite rightly and then they've done very well from it so they're not going to be dishing out capacity willy-nilly and they are going to look for areas of opportunity that they feel are their sweet spots or where they can take advantage for want of a better word
0: yeah well I suppose you don't get a jeet unless you pay the right price right (laughs)
2: You can say that, Mark. I'm not prepared to comment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've had a lot of announcements of a potential class of 2020. Are they coming online quickly enough, some of those potential new markets, or do you just deal with what's in front of you and you're going to have to wait until January or whatever and see what's there?
2: Well, I think uh, some of them are coming on and they're actively writing now, which is good. I think what goes on for 2020 is going to be very interesting, particularly with a lot of this movement of underwriters John Neal's vision for Lloyd's going forward, MGA's setting up, I think it's coming on quick enough. I'm actually surprised how quickly some of it has got up and running, actually. We did think that maybe with the convex, you know, it was going to take a while to build up. They're out there, they're writing and, and they're doing well.
0: So it would be fair to say the market's just as nimble and and as dynamic as it always has been?
2: Well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I mean, we are in the new normal. Perhaps our brains have all been fried in lockdown and we can't really remember what it was like, but it doesn't feel restrictive at the moment. I think, again, we're all managing, everyone's adapted. I think there are big deals being done. There are different things being done. Does it feel as dynamic as it did before? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, even you and I sitting here talking on a Zoom call... As I said to you at the beginning, it'd be much nicer that you would be able to sort of do a face-to-face meeting. It's not the same, but you manage, don't you?
0: Absolutely. In fact, like my last face-to-face meeting, probably for a long time, was with John Neal. I was very glad I was able to go in there and meet him face-to-face. And of course, I mentioned about actually being able to eat a chocolate biscuit. was quite. <laughs> it was, I only ever eaten them in meeting rooms. But actually, in, in that chat I had with John, he said he was going to reimagine the Lloyd's underwriting room for the 21st century for the new normal. If you're going to be asked to chip in to help design what that new underwriting room, he said the current one's like an old Victorian schoolroom, and it doesn't need to be like that. What do you think it should be more like?
2: Well, there were rumours that he was going to do something along the lines of The Sims for those people that ever remember what The Sims was like, where it was going to be a virtual underwriting room and you'd walk in from your computer and you'd go and talk to the underwriter remotely. I thought that was all a bit weird, I have to say. that's. But like, I'm not sure how you would change it. I think one of the things that we do think as brokers that has been very arcane over the years is you don't get the underwriters in the room till 11, 11.30. You have them till one, they go away, whether they're doing meetings or lunch or whatever, they're back at two thirty, three 3 o'clock and they're gone again by 4, 4.30. So your window of opportunity to broke to an underwriter is very small. The pressures on underwriters I get, because these days you're reporting your business plans, your numbers, you're reporting upwards, you're reporting downwards, you're trying to do client meetings. And I do get that it's tricky, but whatever we do, we need to increase if we're going to keep our uniqueness. We need to increase the face-to-face time that brokers get with underwriters. And if we can't do that via the room, then I think we're making a
0: big mistake. Do you think technology is going to free up that time so that you get more real quality time?
2: I think if John Neal makes them redo their plans again and again and again, maybe quite rightly, that that's not going to free up their time at all. And I get what everyone's trying to do to make Lloyds profitable and keep the dynamics going. But I do think, and not just, not just Lloyds' plans, they have to do reporting and analysing of numbers. And it's a lot more pressure than the old days underwriting where you could rock up, have a good discussion, agree a price, put a line down and walk away. But
0: that hasn't gone on for a number of years. You mentioned about business planning and effective regulation and supervision. Do you think authorities like Lloyd's are putting too many constraints on underwriters' freedom to act and act quickly?
2: I think it's a tricky one because we'd all like to not have as many rules and regulations and the layers of reporting is tricky. But there were some bad practices. We all know that. You know, we do know that there were some possible rogue syndicates, rogue under Edison. That doesn't sit well. It taints the whole of Deloitte's environment. So I think that there is a need to make sure that we look slicker and and we are performing well and we're performing well for our clients. Is there too much regulation? And we're always going to say there's too much regulation, aren't we? Whether you're a broker, you know, it's the FCA that you've got to report to, or we all have to have big compliance functions now. Again, I get it, but uh, it, it does slow things down and hamper business a bit.
0: A big part of the story for an independent broker like One Global is the big opportunity that's come about because of the merger of MMC and JLT, the acquisition, sorry, of MMC and JLT, and now this prospective Aon Willis merger. How much of a market opportunity do you think it is for an independent like One Global?
2: Well, I think it's massive and that's why we're where we are and that's why I've joined Mike Reynolds and that's why we're on this sort of trail because undoubtedly there's very good people at MMC and JLT and Aon and Willis, but clients need to have more of a choice and the markets need to have a better distribution or a wider distribution than one or two giant companies where they don't really have a choice of who they deal with. So I think there's going to be fallout. There already has been, as you know, from MMC and and the JLT merger. I'm one of them, and there's a number of others. There are other mergers and acquisitions going on to make smaller companies. You know, you've had Tizer, Integro, RFIB to try and get them to a more medium-sized, I guess, entity. You've got Miller's being sold off. You've had Capsicum, Rego into Gallagher's. You've got Alasco in that. And I do think that there is a massive opportunity for One Global to fill a gap. I think that the gaps have been created in, in different ways, but we will be able to give clients more personal service as I say, they're very good people at these bigger brokers, but you are dealing with perhaps so many people, you're you're a number rather than a person. And we're trying to make sure that the client experience with us is particularly different.
0: Does that naturally mean that you're going to gravitate towards smaller and medium sized clients and leave the big two or big three to fight it out for the Fortune 1000, 2000 companies?
2: Uh, I think it depends on where we go with our journey. I mean, at the moment, we're still on that journey and we're still employing people. And, you know, we might not be able to give one of the Fortune 100 clients all the services they want, but we might be able to give them something in a very specialised area. Obviously, SSL was very specialised in the marine side of things and continues to be so. So it doesn't mean we're not going going to be dealing with those clients. But Yeah, I think, you know, we have to make sure that whatever we do go after, we're able to deliver the right service. We won't be going after those clients where we don't feel that we can offer that either currently, but we might be able to do that in the future.
0: Obviously, Aon Willis is a massive potential transaction. If you were the competition regulator, would you wave that through or would you have any concerns? I mean, obviously you're not because you're a rival broker, but... um... What would you say?
2: (laughs) Listen, I would never want to get into the game of second-guessing regulators, so I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. However, I do think it comes back to what we just talked about, is that there needs to be more distribution channels in the market. If the regulator waves that one through, like they did the MMC-JLT merger, then again, it gives opportunities for people like us and McGill's and RFIB's and Tizer's and others to come in, fill that space and give a better distribution to both clients and to markets. I mean, markets don't want to be just having to deal with one or two brokers. They want to be able to have a variety. So um, regulator or not, I hope it goes through because it will then give us an opportunity to hire some more talent who don't want to be part of a giant broking organisation and who want to be masters of their own destiny. And what we're doing is really exciting at One Global. And there are people that will see that as something that thrills them, that they want to actually develop something. They want to not be in a production line of clients coming in. They have to go and get clients. And we all know that the chase is quite fun.
0: So you think the market will just sort itself out?
2: Well, I think it has no choice, but I think it will sort itself out. And um, you've been in the market a long time, and so have I. And we've seen lots of these things happen, and. It always comes back and finds its own level and I think it will again.
0: I'm going to change the subject, a big part of the discussion I had with um, John Neal was of things that were on his desk, something that happened early in his tenure was uh, a real breaking of the Me Too movement and then there's now been more BLM. Now that culture and diversity is firmly on the boardroom agenda, what do you want to change in the insurance world and is that change going fast enough
2: Uh, Great question, Mark. And I've been giving this uh, some thought, obviously, over the last few months since I've come back into the market. I think the Lloyd's campaign that John Neal is doing is very valuable. I think it's very positive. And I think it's great that there are people that are really trying to focus on this in much more of a structured way and much more of a, I guess, from what a better word, an aggressive way, really taking this to the industry to embrace. If I look back over the years when I started and I was in Lloyds, to spot the female underwriter was probably one of our best games. And since then, we've had many people in underwriting positions, which is great. There's probably in excess of 30 plus as you walk around Lloyds. Not many of them are active underwriters yet, but I still think it's really encouraging that we have so many more than there were, and that's something that Lloyds is focused on. Obviously, they've appointed people like Fiona Luck to the strategic team. You know, She's a very talented woman in the market, and I think she'll help push that forward. And there's others that are coming on to committees like Claire Lebec and other people like that that are either chairing broker committees or underwriting committees, and that's really good to see. Is it enough yet? Probably not. The fact that we're talking about it and the fact that there's a big campaign probably says it all. I was talking to a colleague over the last week asking what his opinion was. And actually it comes into society as well. It's not just about the insurance industry. I think it's across as we've all seen in the last few months, coming out of rallies either for or protesting against the Black Lives Matter situation. You've got you've had M Me Too campaigns, you've got celebratory days for LGBT movements, and probably the days when we don't have celebration days and we don't have protests for all these particular cultural diversity groups who want to be recognized is the day that we've won the battle. And people get into jobs and people are recognised and people matter regardless of their cultural diversity or gender. And I think that's quite an interesting point.
0: The corporation has set itself some specific gender-based targets, for example. Do you think we might need those as some way of priming the pump and getting the thing moving? Do you think we need maybe compulsory targets?
2: I'm always a bit wary of targets. I regret that we'd ever have to have targets. I think on one hand, it's a very good thing because it means that Companies are going to be forced to think in a different way and perhaps forced to fish in a different pond for really good talent that's out there that perhaps doesn't present itself to the market naturally. So we perhaps should be looking at universities or we should be looking at different countries, progressing people in there. But I'm also wary of targets because I think people then strive to meet the target regardless of the quality of the individual that you're employing. Obviously, I've had a long career. I hope I'm a role model in the market, but I feel and I hope I've done it on merit, not by filling a quota. And I'm sure there's a number of other senior women who are in similar situations to me and or more senior than myself, who would hope that they're recognized for the good work they've done, the way they've conducted themselves, their intelligence, their professionalism, rather than filling a quota. And I think we've seen it in the States, and I'm not denigrating anything that America's done, but they've been much more quota target focused. And I think we have seen that there have, on occasions, been people promoted into or employed into positions where perhaps they weren't the best person for the job.
0: But are you optimistic about the future? For example, would you advise someone's daughter to pursue a career in global insurance today?
2: Uh, well, that's quite funny because my eldest daughter is in insurance today, and she's been in it for six or seven years. So she started as an underwriter. Both her parents were brokers. So I think she decided she wanted to do it in a uh, completely different way. And she's currently on the broking side. You know, and in talking to her, I think she feels that it has progressed a lot from my day, because if I tell her what it was like in the market then, and she reflects on how it is in the market now, we have definitely seen a significant amount of progress. We are still though, behind the banking industry and some other industries who have seem to have done it either without targets or by natural progression. And I still feel that the insurance industry is behind. However, would I discourage anybody else's daughter to come into the market? No, I wouldn't. I still think it's an extremely good career. If you're somebody that wants to get on and has got ambition, then I think you should. However, I do see in her similar traits that I've seen in some other women I've mentored and possibly myself going way back where women actually have to take the progression of themselves by the scruff of the neck and actually put themselves forward. And I do think looking back, and actually this was said to me by a client, it was his observation, funnily enough, at a Women at Willis Day, which was being hosted. And he was talking to the assembled group and said the biggest thing that he sees as a barrier for women to get into the highest positions is that they don't, themselves forward or have the confidence to put themselves forward for some of the top jobs ahead of the men. And one of the key differences, his observation was that a man might go for the job when they're between 20 and 50% qualified to do the job and hope for the best and hope they progress into it and end up being the finished product, as opposed to women who will want to wait until they feel they're between 90 and 100% qualified to do the job, lack the confidence to put themselves forward, or are frightened of failure. Because I do think that's still one of the things that we see in this industry. You had Inga Beale as head of Lloyd's. I think she did a good job, some people would say a mixed job, but I think there were a number of people willing her to fail. And I think that does happen, whether it was Theresa May or in other areas of our society. Um, people are always constantly trying to bring people down. We do need to actually get a grip and put ourselves forward a lot more for these jobs.
0: If it's about building up confidence in those younger women who are ambitious and who who are clearly going to have potential for a really good career. So is it about building up their confidence? Is that something you can do? And now you're in a position of influence yourself at board level, as a business like One Global, is this something you're going to be promoting and pushing?
2: Yes, definitely. And I think we're in a very fortunate space. We've rebranded. We're trying to put ourselves forward in to, I guess, be progressive in terms of where we employ, how we employ, how we treat clients. And we definitely have an ambition to do that. It's been demonstrated already. We've had 13 hires recently, and five of them have been senior women. Now, is that enough? It's about 40%. So I guess we're kind of getting towards maybe a a 50% hiring target of choices of looking at senior women. But we definitely need to push that. And also, I'm trying to look at spotting talent within the group already and trying to get them out of perhaps either a rut or lack of confidence and actually pushing them to push themselves forward. And I do think as women in the industry, senior women, we need to be looking out for those women, telling them to put themselves forward, telling them that it's okay to go for these jobs and encouraging them to do that. So yes, definitely, I'll be um, doing as much as I can to promote
0: that. One point, you didn't answer the question about with your own daughter. Did you encourage her or did you try and talk her out of a career in insurance?
2: No, I didn't, actually, because I did feel that other areas she was looking at, she wouldn't be as happy in. So no, I didn't discourage her, but I did point out to her some of the challenges that she might face. And we have, over the past six or seven years, had a lot of chats over that, not least of which recently where she was putting something forward about a profile that she had to do. And I said, you need to change that and put that in there. She said, well, that means I'm bigging myself up. And I went, absolutely right. That's exactly what you need to do. And I said, you do have to think more like a man in that respect. As long as it's factual, of course, you should big yourself up. So again, I think mentoring is going to be important in the industry. But again, women just have to have the confidence to Believe in their own ability. And I think we see that not just in insurance, it's in other industries, but it's something very important.
0: Thank you so much, Vanessa. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And I'm sure we should book in some time to come and speak next year and beyond. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for giving me the platform to try and encourage the movement of cultural diversity and women diversity and also a bit of advertising for One Global. So I really appreciate that.
0: Nothing wrong with putting yourself forward. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.